Hello everyone, this is Wyatt from the Sprites and Dice podcast. I wanted to take a moment and re-record a new intro for this episode, simply because it's now over three months later, and I think you guys are owed an explanation. Unfortunately, back in January, after recording this episode and a few others, we actually had a power outage and we lost a lot of our files in Audacity. This set us back quite a ways. We had to build a new computer, and by the time we had all of that set up, we were preparing for PAX East, which was our big yearly event, and we wanted to really focus on getting our writing game up to speed for that large event. Now, however, we are back victorious. We have a lot of new content, and we want to really get back into the audio game. So we're starting back up again with two podcasts a month, one video game-based, one board game-based. We're really excited to be back. If you have been a fan of the podcast in the past, thank you for coming back to us after a long pause. If you're new, uh, be patient. Don't worry about the time we mentioned in this episode. We're hoping to have another podcast out very, very soon after. Thanks a lot, everyone. I really hope you enjoy the content we have in the future. And welcome back to the Sprites and Dice podcast, where we talk about gaming news, reviews, opinions, and thoughts, all in 45 minutes or less. My name is Wyatt Krause, and I'm joined here by Adam. It is January 16th, and this podcast episode is dedicated to board games. More specifically, we are going to cover two quick board game reviews of games that we've recently played and really enjoy. And we're also going to talk about a main topic which is really interesting and something that kind of really blew my mind as I read about it, which is counterfeit board games, something that you wouldn't really expect on the face value. Right. Board gaming as a whole, I think our hobby is still kind of niche as much as it is growing and becoming more, like, widely accepted. So you're, well, you're like, how, how likely could counterfeit be? So this is kind of weird because we're just, we're, this is our first board game podcast that we're recording at the start of 2018, coming off of 2017, which... We've both talked about it, and most people have talked about it in the whole community, that 2017 was just a... It was an incredible year for board games. Yeah, out of this world, propelled it to the next level. The um, sheer volume of board games that were published in 2017, I mean, even all of the big reviewers, including the Dice Tower, just said like they review hundreds of games in a year, they, the number that they play, and even they couldn't get through all of them. The picture they showed about two months ago about like them getting like pallets filled with cardboard boxes. Yeah. And I just saw that and went, oh, we get we get a few every few months. This is, oh, we have a ways to go, buddy. I <laughs> was kind of where we're at, at the, at the start of this community or community content creator, whatever they're calling it these days. But it was it was a banner year. It was a really big year. If we were open tabletop, it's gotten even larger. Uh, you mean with Starfinder and... Starfinder uh, coming out. D&D. There's now articles coming out in things like The New Yorker uh, that are talking about how... Dungeons Dragons is now popular again among teenagers, partially because of Stranger Things, mm, uh, the most okay. recent book. How there's this resurgence of okay, now it's okay to be a nerd, it's okay to be a gamer, which it has been for a while, but now it's, it's really been popularized. The shows like Big Bang Theory, which has been on the air for a while now, right? And, yeah, and video games were the first, were kind of like obviously the, the most immediate drive, but board games are now kind of getting this massive influx. When I was at PAX Unplugged, a lot of the people I talked about or talked to it like hey so why are you here what are you here for and i was expecting a lot of like oh i love board game conventions to go to all of them most of them were locals who said 
there's a big gaming convention in my hometown. I play, I've played Catan once, but, you know, why not check it out for a day? Mm-hmm. Or a lot of people there was like, this is my first board game convention. I've always wanted to go, but I haven't had the money to go off the East Coast. So there was a lot of that going on. So the, so the industry has gotten larger. I just never, on my first thought, thought about pirating. Because in my mind, I remember the pirating scare of computer games when I was like, 12, 13, 14, mm-hmm. when you had the first DRMs, the kind of ways to lock content be- behind oh, CD yeah. codes. Or do you actually have the CD in the drive? There were checks to say that. Oh, the really, really old, you remember the really, really old ones? They used to have like a little paper thing in the manual. It'd be like, what is the password printed on page 15 yes, of the manual? Yes, and I remember losing that manual oh, sometimes. Yeah. And then, no, you're freaking out. You had all that, and then you had Napster hit. And mm-hmm. then BitTorrent and all this other stuff that made it so video games have kind of gone through their own pace. But this was about 15 years ago by this point, a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now, 20 years later, we are, yeah, 15 or 20. Ah, we're old. We're getting old. I mean, you can speak for yourself. We're, the, we're basically the Aren't same age Aren't you older listener. than I am? Shh. Uh, <laughs> um, so, counterfeiting games. Now, in my mind, when I would think about pirating board games or tabletop games i would think rpg books you would you would think that but being they sold digital versions of it which would happen all the time in warhammer and the sort of tabletop miniature games where each mm-hmm. system has their own manual they would have to do that yeah uh, what what's actually happening is they're taking um like very very popular games games like Catan and ticket to ride and Probably Seven Wonders is a very popular one, too, that basically anyone can either get images off the internet, you know, just the images of all the cards, or buy a copy of the game, put it through a scanner, get it on a computer, and basically what they do is run off very low-quality paper or cardboard facsimiles of the board game, stick it in a box with the artwork on the top, and ship it. Because I know you've read a little bit more in depth about this, but yeah. kind of from my from my scrolling through and this great interview that happens with Asmodee North America. Right. So, yeah, uh, CEO of Asmodee North America, Christian Peterson, talked about in an interview that was uh, up on Reddit recently about the counterfeiting of board games in the industry and kind of what Fantasy Flight is kind of looking on their end to do, which is the Asmodee on their end is looking to do, to kind of do their part in the industry. They want to be like a good player in the industry because they realize, like... What's good for local business is ultimately good for the hobby in the long run. That's been a big thing about yeah. board games. And also when I used to run a Malifaux League, mm-hmm. which is miniatures, it's all about having a local place to all meet around and have mm-hmm. a good time and play the game together. Yeah, and they, they are, there was a series of articles here, and they talked about a lot of things. But one of the things they talked about is how, um, like, if they wanted to play the big evil corporation, they could cash in and use the popularity to just sell more copies of their own games and things like that. But they realized that if they were to do the short-term cash in in the long run, it would probably hurt local game retailers. It right. would hurt the gaming spaces. Um, and you, you really have to hand it to to Mr. Peterson here that like as big of a CEO, company CEO as he is, he is still very much a gamer and a game creator at his heart. And he really tries to think about like how can what we're doing as a company maintain game stores as a game space. Well, it's interesting just when you talk about board games as their own market in regards to something like video games. Because video games... Because of the internet, you can play online all the time. Mm-hmm. Board games, one of the main draws now in a digital age of information and gaming, is now you have the chance to sit across the table and look your friend dead in the face as you beat them to death or you 
solve world hunger or disease and pandemic or mm-hmm. what have you, it's that true. you have that. And that comes with its own set of challenges because in, at least in North America, you don't have a, a space oftentimes that is okay for, you know, casual hangouts and playing board games. Like right, it's usually one or the other. You go to the bar drinking. or you go to the game store. Right. Now, that's changed a bit. And actually, I just found out Philly is opening up very soon their first bar that is also a... Yeah, board like game a board show. game cafe. Yeah, yeah. Um, called Thirsty Dice. They aren't as big on the East Coast. There's There's been quite a few, actually, for a few years on the West Coast. So we are starting to see that starting to happen, but we need to cultivate this sort of area that is, you know, a gaming store that's meant to sell games, but also a place where you can play them and try them out with other people. Because it's very hard to find people immediately, mm-hmm. unlike, you know, going on Xbox Live. So you need this area where you need to kind of build from the ground up. So board game developers have been doing a really great job, and... The industry has grown because of their careful nurturing of the local gaming stores. They're called local friendly gaming stores. Friendly local gaming stores. Friendly local F-L-G-S gaming stores. FLGS is Thank the you. internet term, yes. F- yeah, taking their <clears throat> FLGS and making it popular, growing that. Um, you have all the people that do YouTube videos and podcasts and everything. Mm-hmm. And now it's gotten large enough because of banner years like 2017. I know 2015 was considered a big year. I think 14 might have been a big year, 2014. I mean, they've been saying yeah. that every year the, the market has been growing, but there's been some years where they've all seen like their profits jump and the game quality has jumped as Yeah, well. and there have been like several really big release titles that have really driven the hobby up in that year, yeah. So now we have counterfeiting, and it's just and it just kind of blows my mind that we're at a point where this can happen. And from when I saw in the interviews, it actually kind of made more sense as I read it, that a large part of this is it's done as a scheme, possibly out of China, which, right. I mean, looks like a gold farming in World of Warcraft also run out of China. Right. It's It uses seller, online sellers, like, for example, Amazon is a huge one because, you know, uh, third-party sellers from all over the world can utilize Amazon for warehouse space and for fulfillment. Right. So um, what can happen is one of two things. Uh, You can see, pretty much, you can see uh, a counterfeit company spring up overnight, sell a bunch of board games, and then... If they get shut down, no big loss, or they can just disappear and open up another one. It, those kind of turn into a big game of kind of whack-a-mole because it's almost impossible to track them back at this point and really shut them down for good. Sometimes they'll open up just to test what people are interested in, to see what people go and then order from them, just to see what the valuable seller is going to be, and then they'll crop up an actual store where they then run the counterfeits and sell just the ones that they see are actually uh, profitable to them. And then they'll vanish. Yeah, and then either they'll get shut down because they'll get reported, or they'll just vanish and open up a new one. Uh, the other flip side is that sometimes counterfeits uh, can just get mixed in with Amazon stock. Some folks on the internet have reported that they'll buy from a reputable third-party seller, let's say in this country, who fulfills through Amazon. And because they fulfill through Amazon, Amazon will just go into their stock. Let's say you order a copy of Seven Wonders. Okay. Amazon will just go into the warehouse where the Seven Wonders games are stored, pull one off the shelf, and ship it to you. But because they're not maintaining their own effectively store warehouse through Amazon, uh, it's just the general stock, there's a possibility that counterfeits can get mixed in with those. And the thing that really took me, not by surprise, it shouldn't have taken me by surprise, was this element that it's devaluing board games. I really like um, in the interview and how people have approached this, not as just a simple pirate's bad, you know, mm-hmm. local publisher, it's good, but they actually talked about how the whole chain is affected. So one thing is, is that 
let's say you have, and they, I think they mentioned Seven Wonders has gotten really yes. hard about this. That's where, why I keep coming back to that title, yeah. Where if you um, go online and you look at reviews, it has stellar reviews up until about the last year. Right. And and the thing I, what that floored me from that interview that, that we read was that... Um, and and he's he's supposing here, but my take on this is because earlier in the interview, if he's he's posed a question that he doesn't know the answer to, he says I don't know or I can't really comment on that. You know, he is still very much a CEO in that respect that he doesn't want to say things that are completely untrue or unfounded and then have to come out and correct them later. So he's um, talking later on in the interview and he says. You know, I don't have a hard number, but somewhere probably around 70% of some of the most popular board games could be counterfeited out there right now. And that's think about crazy. that. 70%. And I think he, the statistic was of all retail sales online or online or something like that, 70% of all online sales. That is not a small number. And you talk about danger to the hobby. Who's buying these board games? Well, it's probably people who are going online to shop who see... Well, what's a popular game? Oh, Seven Wonders is a popular game. I can buy a copy on Amazon. And these might not be people who realize, this is what shocked me, that they're receiving a counterfeit copy. Because they look and they have all the scanned components, but the components might be of a really cheap quality, bad print job, offset, badly cut, um, cheap materials that they're printed on. Mm -hmm. And they look at this thing and they go, really? This is... This is a modern board game. This is cruddy, and then and then they just they're lost from the hobby. Is is what they're saying. So let's go back to something that I think I've mentioned about in previous episodes, which is Splendor. Splendor is seen as one of the games that changed the hobby, mm-hmm. not because of Splendor is the gem trading game with cards, but also the weighted poker chip. Exactly, gems. it's the weighted poker chips. Not even so much the content of the game itself. The game itself is considered to be very good. It's got a, it's got a very great market for itself. It's considered quick, accessible. However. It's the quality of the components that said that really changed things. And and I'm going to go out on a limb here, and you would think that those weighted poker chips wouldn't really be something a cheap counterfeiter would really waste their time with, right? But they did say in this article, too, that they're starting to see basic plastic pieces now get counterfeited, too, as it becomes easier and easier to make these things cheaply. I think of the little plastic train pieces in Ticket to Ride are probably right. what he's referencing. <clears throat> but the weighted poker chips, you could just print out little non-weighted poker chips and chuck them in a box, too. That's exactly what I'm saying. Is that yeah. it, One thing about board games is that as things have become digital, you want a game that feels tactile, that feels good to play with, that you can see a lot, that's easy to read or translate, or it feels good to play. When you play Splendor, and you kind of have those weighted poker chips in your hand, and you're kind of like get deciding what you're going to bet on, as it were, what are you going to purchase, what are you going to go for... It adds that little extra something. Board games is a tactile experience, something that video games don't really deliver on as much. Board games really have something special in that, like, I like to touch my army pieces, move them across the map, flip the weighted poker chips, right, or just hold a hand of cards. And with this sort of devaluing that, um, the other thing is that, again, this is a very fragile time for board games. It's not fragile in the fact that, I mean, it's board games have become popular now. They have, but we're still kind of in a formative stage, and it would be a shame, you know, for the hobby to be severely hurt now because of it. A great example, which we've talked about on the podcast before, is that when we started kind of doing spreads, and that's me and John, mm-hmm. three, four years ago, we kind of built our way up. One thing we do is go to Bacchus, one of the local bars, mm-hmm. and we would just pull out a game, be like, hey, let's hang out. Maybe one of our friends will stop on by. We'll hang out in the pool hall room where there's extra tables, it's a little bit more free flow, there's more space, and we'd play some games. People would walk by and give us looks. Like, 
what? What what are they doing over there? You know, yeah, like, and like, and cut to now, right? Not not bad looks, by the way. Just you know, just like I, I don't get it. What's happening? Yeah. Now, however, people come by and what are you playing? That looks interesting. I've played guitar once with one or two of my friends. I've played Ticket to Ride. Is this anything like chess? It looks like chess or mm-hmm. what, whatever it is. I'm making some of that stuff up. In terms of the people will relate dialogue. it to something they know. Like they'll say, "Oh, is that like chess? Oh, is that like, like Magic, the, Magic the Gathering? If it's a is card that like game, Pokemon cards, yeah, right." But the point is, they come up now and they say, "Oh, that looks neat. What is that?" I think it's important to. I mean, it's important to raise the awareness because I wasn't even aware this was an issue. So I'm really happy this interview happened. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think the one thing I want to kind of close out with here is, what can we do? As I mean, you know, we're we're very small. What can we voices. do to protect ourselves and protect the hobby? Yeah, protect the hobby, and more importantly, because we're small content creators. So, like, you know, raising awareness by telling friends about it is one thing. But the other thing I think is, is a lot of people will always try to buy from their local friendly gaming store. Right, and that is one way that you can ensure that you're getting a decent copy, uh, because they're buying usually directly from the distributors who are publishing the game. Not from somewhere in Amazon's warehouses right. where there may be, you know, counterfeit copies mixed with the real stuff. Now, I, I would sometimes do this, and I, but I would usually go like one in one, right? Because the, Amazon or Miniature Market, for example, yeah, has I really good deals. I don't live particularly close to a local game store, so for me, it's hard to haul out to some place to make all my board game purchases there. Um, so we can also talk about what you can do to protect yourself if you do find yourself buying online. So, for example, places like uh, Cool Stuff Inc., Fun Again Games, Miniature Market, yes. they get their stock again, they buy from publishers. So if you're getting from there, I've never heard of an issue yet, maybe that's out there, I don't know, but I've never heard of an issue yet where buying from one of those retailers resulted in a counterfeit copy. Right. The danger tends to come when people are hunting for sales on Amazon and you see something that's too good to be true. I would say, you know, up to 50% off, it can still be decent. Sometimes, you know, sellers do have to clear out their stock and they want to do big sales and sometimes you'll snag something at a good price. But if you're getting up into like the 70 or 80% off range, I would immediately start questioning. Um, Mm. What you can do also is check the seller if the seller is coming out of China and the price seems way too good, it may be a counterfeit copy. Check the seller's history. Do they have reviews? Are they recent? Um, how long have they been around? That kind of thing. Don't just click purchase now and not look at who yeah. the seller is. It's a shame that we have to take this extra step. It is. But, I mean, that's one of the things about whenever a hobby or a, yeah, hobby or a genre of something becomes popular enough that... Yes, you have the benefit of having more people playing or, you know. But then you also have people who want to make a cheap buck off of it. Yeah. Yeah. So. I would say, too, if you do know somebody who got a counterfeit copy and they don't realize it's a counterfeit, you know, speak up. Let them know that this isn't what the hobby actually is and maybe uh, steer them in the right direction for a safer purchase. I'd like to think that my large collection that's sitting right behind us, none of that is counterfeit. But, you know, maybe it's good to take a quick look. I haven't seen any counterfeit board games on your shelf yet, Wyatt. Hopefully not. And, you know, it's. I'm sad that this issue exists, but I'm happy that someone has spoken about it publicly because that's one of those things that you can't address a problem unless you know it's there. So mm-hmm. I'd rather talk about something a little bit more positive, though. So should we get to our lightning board game reviews? Yes. I'm ready to stick a penny in a light socket, Wyatt. Like, what? <laughs> stick a penny in a light... It was in the lost episodes. You stick a penny in a light socket, then you do a review. It's like it's Hot Pepper Gaming, but for lightning reviews. For any listeners listening, I'm not really going to stick a penny in a light socket, nor do I recommend you do it. It's extremely dangerous, and you could end up in the hospital. Don't do it. I was just joking. So This is a family-friendly show. (laughs) 
So we are going to do some lightning board game reviews, and we're actually going to try and make these quicker than we ever have before. Part of that is that both of these games that we're going to talk about are really good when they're played quickly. They're really fun for that reason. We've been on a bent lately about playing games that are quick and easy to learn, great to break out at game night, right? Yeah, because I do game night, and it's oftentimes in an area that serves drinks. People come up, they want to try out a new game. They've only played something like Settlers before, or they've played Magic once when they were younger. Or they've played Cards Against Humanity, and, and that's they, about it. And they want to try something new. Yeah. Uh, something that would often happen when we first started was that people would bring these la large, ponderous games like Spirit Island, which is a two, three-hour experience. Spirit Island is hard to teach in a bar night, yes. Like, yes, or just in general. I mean, it's a great game, but it's thick, it's clunky. Um, or very large Euros like Viticulture, or... Well, Viticulture is not too hard to get into, actually. It, it is, but it's also a longer game. This is true. So, something that I've really appreciated is games that I can teach quickly. I can then wind them up and let them go and let people play them repeatedly. One like that is Pretending to Grown Up, which mm -hmm. is a great segue from uh, Jason Anarchy Games. It's a great segue from sort of like the party game, like... Like Humanity. Yeah. And then turn it into a little bit more of a bluffing game element, but it's still hilarious and very quick to learn. Right, and a game is over in 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. I, I put out an article a while back about what makes a good gateway game and using atypical games as gateway games. And one of my criteria that I continue to talk about online when I you know post places is people would prefer, especially if they're coming from the non-gamer crowd, to play three or four games of something that's 20 minutes rather than one game of something that's like an hour and a half. Right. So, something to keep in mind, so these two games are a little bit more on the lighter side. That doesn't mean that they're not complex in their own way, but they're a little bit quicker to kind of understand and jump into. Mm -hmm. The first one I want to talk about is a game that I was able to pick up at PAX Unplugged called Entropy Worlds Collide. It was made by Rule and Make Games, and it is a very small box, um, very cheap. I believe it's only $15, it might be $20, and it is only 15 minutes long for two to four players. It's surprising because the game actually has quite a bit of depth to it. It's got a little bit of a card bluffing trick taking to it. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a set collection game. So the, the theme of it is like you're all people pulled out of time from various places. There's like an alien from an alien planet, there's a samurai, there's You're from different realities. And from different realities, in, yeah. yeah. And you're trying to find the shards of your own reality, which are on these cards. Uh, and as soon as you can get your four shards or there's a wild in there, so like three shards in a wild, yeah. you can jump home to your reality, and, and unfortunately all the other players get trapped into your reality as yeah. well. But you get home, so you yeah, win so the game. Yeah, so it's got that whole shattered feeling. The art's got a really great sci-fi feel to it. Lots of watercolors within jagged edges. Yeah, I would say watercolors with jagged edges. It's very evocative of that whole idea of shards of reality floating about. I actually, I'm normally very OCD about like keeping a discard pile very like neat and clean. But with this game, when we throw stuff in the discard pile, I like to kind of keep it all like looking like it's floating at odd angles through space in the middle of the table, just because it seems more thematic. The game itself is only about 60 cards total in the box, so it's also pretty easy to quick, bring mm -hmm. up. And if you're not playing with all the players, you won't use all of those cards in any given game. Exactly. So what happens is that you're randomly dealt one of six different characters, and each character has a little bit of their own theme and style to them. So one's more robotic and very much has a symbol that corresponds to that. Another character which has crystals growing out of the side of their head, they're considered to be like an empathic character. And each one of their abilities is like that. So the resourceful one, for example, has a personal ability where he can pull out of his discard pile to find shards of reality. Uh, the one I was playing, which was kind of the alien one, just could look at like the top three cards of the deck, and if any of those were your own shard, you could just claim them immediately. 
in a round, pretty much, you have the area where everyone can draw from, which is the nexus. Mm-hmm. You have your own particular location where you have your character to the left, that hold that where you can hold one card face down. And then you have the area which is where you put the shards. You need four to win or again three in the wild. On a turn, you have one of six cards that you can actually play. And everyone has the exact same six cards. So, for example, the first one is to use the personal ability of the character that you're playing as. So this is where choosing your character or having it randomly dealt to you will change the way you play. Mm -hmm. For example, I loved having as many cards in the discard pile as possible and letting them go there. Because when they went to the discard pile, they would automatically reveal and become face up. So right. So taking from the discard pile, you don't have to do the reveal thing. You don't have to do the one step, two step. Right. So my character was very good at digging through the trash. He would dig through the tr- yeah. So he would load the discard pile up intentionally, throwing his own there, so that he could big play them into his score area later. The second card you can play is called Expose, and that's where you can reveal a shard, and you can take the shard if it belongs to your character. One thing to keep in mind. You can reveal from anywhere. This is something that took a little while to get used yeah, to. Yeah, I had to get used to that too. Like so if I you're can... hiding your own shard in your own discard pile and I think you're hiding one of mine, I go to reveal it thinking I'm going to take it and put it in my score area and I reveal you and your shard. I put it in your score area. I put it Because in... you're holding it. Exactly. Or if you're holding it to mine, I can look at yours or I can look at the top card of the deck. Yeah, you can use it for a blind stab at the deck too, which is really nice when you're desperate and you don't have any better moves. You can then, um, your third card is called Fracture, where you take two top cards from the Nexus. I love the picture of Fracture, where it's like a woman, glowing eyes, like looking at just shards of glass everywhere. It's take per- two cards off the deck. so But you only can hold one. But so you can only hold one. And because you're not revealing it, it has to go into your holding area. Exactly. And so, if you already got something there, that has to get thrown in the trash. So this is a way to kind of cycle through the deck quickly, but you're also revealing more cards faster. So the game speeds up already. The fourth card is Telekinesis, which is just take a shard. Now, this means you don't get to reveal it if it's not revealed, but this lets you also either take a card from the top of the deck and hope it's a blind luck. You can take a card from the discard, and if it's one of yours, you score it immediately. Or I can take a card out of your hold. And while you don't get to see what it is immediately, you can take it right. out. So you have this whole idea of manipulating the board to see where you want to take things from. The fifth one is you get to return all played actions, including the reset, to your hand. Right, so we should mention after you play an action, it stays in your discard pile until you play the number five. Right. And, before we tell you about the number six, if two players play the same action at the same time in a turn, they cancel out and neither of them gets to do it. So timing your actions, especially when you want to pick all your cards up, can be really troublesome. Uh, if you ever run out of cards, I think, and you have none at the start of your turn, then you're allowed to scoop your discard. Which is, which is, yeah. Which is tough when you get locked into that. And that makes you waste more time. And the number six, this though. This is what brings you up to the yeah. sixth card is called Anchor. And what Anchor lets you do is that if you take the Anchor, there's one card in the middle called the Anchor. If you take it, if you're ever in a tie, you win the tie. And then you return the Anchor to the center of the table. And so the, other person, the other person loses that card. So it's a great way to um, you know, win those ties. Now, those cards are numbered 1 through 6 on purpose because they also resolve in that initiative order. So character abilities have the first priority and then it goes down the line. Mm-hmm. So you know, character abilities revealing, taking shards, and then any of the extra things like resetting or taking the anchor. This makes the game really fast, really quickly because everyone's revealing at the exact same time. So a round goes very quickly. You only know, can do one thing at a time. But again, there's only 50 cards total, 50, 50 to 60 cards total in the entire box. If you're playing with less than four people, you're not using all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, this game is super quick. It's like 10, maybe 15 minutes tops. 
So, uh, because I taught you, even though I was learning at the exact same time, what was your immediate reaction to the game? It's very pretty. I love sci-fi. Sci-fi is probably my the, the theme I'm most partial to. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I grew up on sci-fi. So I think that this game is absolutely gorgeous. The artwork is amazing. Um, but more than that, it looks like it should be just such a simple, breezy, like, light game. And, I mean, it is to play, but there's enough depth of strategy in there between the bluffing, the revealing, when to activate your character's special power. Some of them are very complex, allowing you to, like, scout. And the book will recommend you don't play with these characters in your first game, but they'll allow you to scout out other characters and see what they're doing and then change your action or piggyback off of theirs. There's a lot in there. That was my immediate reaction was, wow, this game is, one, pretty. Two, there's a lot here for so few cards and items wow, this game is a lot more intense than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, it gets pretty intense, especially once everybody's played around. Because we played three rounds in less than an hour. Right. Uh, I taught you the game. Uh, our friend went, hey, that looks interesting. Can I try a round? He got dealt in, and then we dealt in Eric. So we got to play it like two, three, or four players. And it, it felt scales up really well with all of them. Yeah. yeah. With two, it's very much more... With two players, it's very much more of a betting game and bluffing. With four, it becomes more manipulative. Because if you start revealing people's cards that are not revealing people's cards that are not theirs or not yours they still stay in their holes but now they're revealed so now mm-hmm. you've kind of got a little bit extra to this bluffing and kind of choosing. they go into the in the discard pile yeah and they stay revealed and yeah and then people like yours Wyatt that take out of the dis, uh, out of the discard pile very easily suddenly become really powerful if no one's watching out for them but at the same time other characters which have the ability to kind of go through the nexus faster have a better chance of finding one of theirs and get rid of the ones that they're not mm-hmm. interested in mm-hmm Right, and, and when I realized how many, like, I'm going to need at least two or three actions to do this thing that I need to win the game, it really does turn into a race when you're like, oh my god, Wyatt only needs one action to do, oh no, hold on, I need to play a card to block him, otherwise I'm going to lose because I can't go fast enough to keep up with him. And him blocking me, I need to take two actions then to kind of build back up. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the game is great because, again, it does only play in 15 minutes, the the game... Sometimes those game boxes lie. It's like, oh, it's an hour. No, it's yeah, no. This one's not lying. This one is really that quick. Um, But surprisingly, the game is complex. Complex enough to the point that if you have someone who's brand new to gaming, like we're talking entirely new, they've never played Catan. uh, You know, they've only played maybe chess when they're younger. This might not be the first game because there is a little bit to wrap your head around. But if you're familiar with any sort of card game rules or logic, it makes sense pretty quickly. Mm Mm-hmm. That, that'd be like my one stipulation is that it's a little bit more complex than you would expect it to be. But if you've got people that enjoy that sort of complexity and that sort of narrow bluffing and set collection, this game is right up your alley and it's a great price. So I did look it up. The reason why I wasn't quite right about the cost was that Rule & Make is a Australian company and it's being manufactured by Passport Game Studios, which is American. That's who I saw at PAX Unplugged. It's actually for pre-order in America right now. It's not out yet in America. And it'll be $20 when it comes out. Uh, for $20, I think it's a really great game. If you need one of those small filler games to throw into your game bag for something to wrap up a board game night or if you're waiting for some friends to come back from grabbing a bite to eat or otherwise. Right. I hope you toss this one in your day bag at PAX so that if I am walking around with you and we just want to sit and chill in the oh, hallway and get off our feet for a few minutes, this is perfect for that. All right, so I think we're both in agreement for that one. So let's go to the kind of giant flashy one that's a much larger box, but ironically, maybe a little bit even easier to kind of just immediately understand because 
as we've all been jokingly calling it, it is combat Yahtzee. It is combat Yahtzee. This, this is Dice Throne. This is Dice Throne. It's being. It was made by Mind Bottling Games. They are brand new after running a very successful Kickstarter last year. Dice Throne is a very nicely polished uh, fighting game in a box using uh, the base box. Here has six characters mm-hmm. in it. Uh, each character gets a personal deck of cards, some of which are common amongst all you know heroes. But you know you get your own unique cards in there too. Your own set of five custom dice mm-hmm. and a player mat. And a little reference as to what your status effects do that your particular character likes to sling at people. Uh, and very simply, on your turn, you have a hand of cards um, and very nice little dials to track some of your stats, like your health and your what are called combat points. That's one of your currencies. Um, you can play your combat points to play upgrades to your abilities or other effects. Then you say, okay, I'm going to attack Wyatt here. I'm going to roll my dice. And then, like Yahtzee, you get to roll your dice up to three times, unless a status effect says otherwise, and make some set of symbols out mm-hmm. of your custom dice. And it's uh, you match those symbols up to the effects on your player board and say, this is the attack I'm going to hit you with this turn. So it's important to keep in mind here, there are six characters in the base box, and each one is a different sort of fantasy theme. Right. Not entirely directly um, basic, but... So like there's a paladin and there's a monk, but there's also a pyromancer rather than just a wizard. Right. There's a moon elf. Yes, which is archer, pretty much. Archer, yeah. There's a shadow thief. Mm -hmm. And there's a barbarian. barbarian, right. And they range in complexity. So the barbarian is probably the most simple. While you go up to like the shadow thief or paladin, there's a lot more status effects they deal with. One thing to keep in mind is that, which goes into the art and quality of the game, is that each different character has a different custom set of dice with their own symbols that are related to the character. So, for example, my Moon Elf had three out of six sides were my attack symbol, which was my bow. Two of them were the foot, which was like my evasive symbol. And one was the moon, which is like my super magic power. Right. Whereas I looked at some of the other heroes, Mm -hmm. like the thief only had two attack symbols... And had four other unique symbols across the rest of his dice. So he has to be a lot more gambly. Which right, he's a lot more gambly. But his combos require, some of them required less samey symbols. Whereas mine, right. I had to roll a lot of bows if I wanted to do a lot of damage. In comparison to that, the monk also only has two symbols for attack, which were the fists. But then I had other symbols which allowed me to do certain things like open palms or the uh, the Tao symbol. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. the yin and yang symbol, which messed with my personal kind of resource called chi. Right, so Wyatt had a stack of tokens that he could spend for added defense or added damage, depending on how he wanted to use them. So every character actually feels, even though it's such a simple game, you know, it's your turn, uh, draw a card, gain some combat power. It was highly thematic. It was highly thematic. You can feel the theme. You really can. My elf felt very, with the extra foot symbols, I was constantly dodging, taking half damage on my defenses. I was constantly shooting you for large amounts of damage. Or hitting you with status effects. Or hitting effects. you with status effects Blinding and then hitting me, you with my arrows. Me. Um, trying to, you know, pin me to a wall and then hit me for the for, for the final shots because you can target me, which means mm-hmm. that I'm taking extra damage every round after that point. Meanwhile, I couldn't really hit you for any major hits because it was harder for me to get those rolls, but... Whenever I want to, I could spend cheat to negate damage, or I could spend cheat to deal extra damage. And, and would... your defensive ability, were, mine was just like, roll, if you get enough feet symbols, you take half damage, and maybe I deal one point of damage to you. Your defense, you were dealing anywhere between one and three points of damage to me every time I shot at you. Right. So you, you were much more consistently chipping me down. Meanwhile, you have someone like Barbarian, just as comparison, and their defensive, their ability to do a defensive roll is 
pretty much for every heart you get, you heal two. And they have like two symbols for hearts, so they could just literally like yell at you and heal more than you Statistically, they're going to heal. I looked at that this because they roll different numbers of dice on their defenses too. Yeah. Statistically, the barbarian's going to get two health back every time he defends, <laughs> which you mean you know means that sometimes yes you won't get any, and sometimes you'll get a whole lot of health. So every character definitely has a very thematic feel. Um, you don't get to roll additional times when you roll defensively; only on the uh, attack is when you get mm-hmm. the extra rerolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Wyatt. But Wyatt, I know we're going to have board game listeners who say, oh gosh, it's a dice game, it's Yahtzee, I'm at the mercy of dice, there's no way I'll ever play this game. So, uh, step one, honestly, I again, I just finished freaking playing Pandemic Legacy Season 2, I'm a huge fan of Lords of Waterdeep, and, and I've got a few of those, but... Um, I've been really enjoying dice games for the right the right time and the right place. And when you just want to throw down, there's no prep. You just the box actually has its own individual section. For oh, the I love dice, the insert. The insert is wonderful. Own section for the, your particular dice, all the particular token icons, your deck of cards, and then of course your large placard that you roll on. And you can just pull it all out, put it down, and go. It's very quick. You get your theme right right away just by choosing that. There's no extra need for fiddliness. You can set up and put down the, you can set up the game and pull it out in about two minutes. And so it, it's it's funny that I throw this to you about the randomness of dice, and you're like, well, the theme is amazing, the heroes are great. You set it up, you get out of the box and go, and the insert's wonderful. Because a lot of people with a lot of people with dice games are going to expect like a lot of miniatures, a lot of like. It's funny. I'm just saying you hear it differently than I do. See, yeah. I hear, oh my gosh, it's dice. It's random. It's just the mercy of die rolls, and that's all it's ever going to be. And to those folks, I would say. My side of the take is there's this deck of cards mm. and you have this combat point currency. You can discard cards out of your hand for extra combat points whenever you need them. Yeah. And you get a free card and a free combat point every turn, with the exception of the first player on the very first turn, because right. they get to go first. And you can spend these cards to mitigate the luck of your dice, because some of them will say you get extra re-rolls. Mm-hmm. Some of them will just say flip a die to your number six side, or flip two dice to any side you want. Or mm-hmm. So like if you save up these cards as you're drawing them, and save up your currency for when you need it, you can have that one turn where every character's got um, a super ability at the bottom of their... A player board where mm-hmm. you have to have six of your number six symbol, which obviously you're never going to just straight up roll that on one go unless right. you're the luckiest person on the planet. And that's what we both did during um, one or two of our demo games where you would save up, I'd save up five or six combat points, and you knew I was charging up for that. Oh, stuff. yeah, Wyatt voided his whole hand one turn and pretty much all of his combat points, but he Used wrecked the me. ultimate. The ultimate for each character is very iconic. So, like, for example, the Pyromancer is hilarious because the Pyromancer gains fire mastery and he needs to keep refreshing it because he loses some every round. But if he has fire mastery, his ability is like Pyroclasm. He just calls off. down a massive meteor storm on the enemy. And for extra, every extra fire mastery, you can then spend those, or just everyone adds to your damage, and they never go away, except for that, sm- that slow tick down. Meanwhile, um, for the monk, I have to kind of spend a whole bunch at once, or save them for defense. So every character has their own theme, their own feel, their own mood. Right. And, but, and it is highly tactical with the cards, I would say, yes. because I had one in my hand that was like, take a status effect that you've been given and throw it back on the other player's board. And I looked at the monk's board, and he has almost no status that he does. I actually asked Wyatt, do you do any status? Because I was thinking about maybe chucking this card out for an extra combat point. He had one status effect that goes, that goes off about one. one of his or two of his abilities called knockdown. And it makes me spend a lot of resources or I lose my turn. 
turn when I get knocked down. So I was like, hmm, maybe I'll hold this card. And I held it for the entire game. And when he finally voided his hand, did his used super attack, used all of his abilities, did massive amounts of damage, and knocked me down. And on my next turn, I was able to be like, well, actually, I'm going to scissor sweep you, and you're going to be knocked down, and I'm going to stand up for free. And now I'm going to hit you back. And that's he what, still won the game, by the way. That's what got him back in the game, though. Yeah, and no, it was the, a lot of fun. The early part of the game, you were kicking my butt because I could not get any attacks. So that's going to bring me to one important thing about the game that might be a detractor. With a dice game, it's exciting. You're rolling the die. You can get people in. It gets people over because the art in this game is amazing. There's very large placards. have gorgeous art. Great artwork. Um, it feels that it has that theme. Very quick and accessible. Very quick and accessible. However, the game is very swingy. Very very swingy because it's a dice game and sometimes you're just going to get that luck with the Yahtzee and when you shout that out you can deal someone everyone starts off with 50 points of health when you're playing a standard one-on-one -on -one game I can take down a third of that or even more sometimes in one go where I thought I was losing for the first but and I felt really bad and then Adam nearly took my then I nearly took Adam's head off then we went back and forth Sometimes it'll balance itself out, especially if you're playing the right character and you know your theme. But sometimes the dice are not going to be your favor. You might whiff occasionally if you do not mm -hmm. bet correctly. Yeah, there is always that possibility that even after you've used up your cards and you've done some things, you don't have that currency left to mitigate the dice and maybe you have a couple of unlucky turns. It's true. The um, I would the, say the other concern... You want to go first? The, um, the other concern that we heard about, because I got this with Eric, we found it at PAX Unplugged. It was one of the first things we saw when we walked by. We saw this gorgeous comic book style artwork that was very flashy. We, we tried it out and it felt really good at first blush. We found out later that even though you can play with multiple people and you can play up to six person free-for-all, which would be insane, mm -hmm. the, game or is, teams. the game is balanced between one-on-one -on -one or two-on-two. -two. If you're doing that, then you pretty much have a shared life pool of 50. And when you go to attack, you randomize it. So when you do that, you roll, and you're either going after the left person, the right person, or you get to choose, or they get to choose who you're going after. Mm -hmm. And that can that can change things, because if someone has a lot of cards in their hand that can be used defensively, going after them could be more dangerous. Yeah, I, I would say unlike a game like Cosmic Encounter, where you're also randomly attacking a player with the occasional wild card coming up where you can choose, Cosmic is usually balanced by the fact that everyone can still alliance... And right. play cards and make deals and screw with the attack. Whereas in this game, I could see, like, if you just have to randomly punch somebody in the face, like, maybe you just don't get to punch the leader. And, and that's right. that would be a complaint. This game really is better balanced for 1v1 combat. Or 2v2. Or 2v2 with a shared life total. Now, if you are playing at a game night and people are just having a good time, maybe for laughs, it's good to play that free-for-all. But it's very much balanced for 1v1 or 2v2. Yeah. In fact, I could actually see, like, doing a league night with this game happen at a table where people take turns, everyone claims their favorite character, and then you battle it out in like a ladder. Which would be a lot of fun. Which would be a lot of fun. So um, it, the game is coming out this month or into February. That's when they're producing it. They found Roxley Games, the, sorry, Roxley Games Laboratory, the same company that actually made Santorini, which was a big hit in 2017. Oh, yeah. So I'm really excited that they were able to find a publisher that, that they're getting this additional support. We'll talk about that in a moment. The game's going to be $50 when it comes out. And is that price worth it? I think for the for what you're getting in here, I think it is. You have custom dial things for your life totals. Yep. You have six sets of custom dice. You have an insert that's really good. I know that inserts always bump up the cost a little bit. Yeah. This game is really nice, and the box is really thick and glossy, too. It's... I think it's worth it. I think it's really fun. I'm glad I have a game like that in my collection where I didn't quite have a game that was like this. It's not. I didn't have a game that was combat Yahtzee. I had combat fighting games. I had card games that felt like combat, like Hero Realms. 
but I didn't have one that just it just felt that this it has its own niche and it fills it very very well. I'm very happy about that. I think I think both these games are great for very different reasons, but both are played very quick. I mean, Dice Throne once you know how to play the game, 20 30 minutes. Yeah, uh, you can play even faster than that. Yeah, if you want. if you play quickly, you can play it faster than that. Once yeah. you add more Things go out the window, but even two v two can be pretty quick if you're on the same team. Mm-hmm. So both are great games. Definitely check them out. See if you're interested in them. Hopefully, we'll have reviews on our website in written form soon. But besides that, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for listening in. Did you like what you heard today and want even more of our content? Check us out at www.spritesanddice.com for all of our articles, updated every week. You can follow us on Twitter at sprites and dice. That's and as an n. Or follow our Facebook group to be notified about all of our posts and events. These episodes are possible thanks to the support of our listeners and readers, and everyone out there that loves picking up a controller or a pair of dice. If you want to support the Sprites and Dice project, please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, or stop by our Patreon. Every dollar helps. Thank you for being a gamer. Remember everyone, life is short, so have fun gaming.